from Chan Master by Zhang, and I was confused. His name in Japanese is Hyakujo, and it's the famous Hyakujo of Hyakujo's Fox, a, various, a very important Zen koan that we are all studying. So the practitioner asks, how can one attain a mind which is like wood or stone in the presence of all situations? In one of the earliest Chan teachings, Bodhidharma said, to enter the way of Zen, make your mind like wood or stone. Doesn't mean dead and inert. Wood and stone are not dead and inert. It's not what it means. So the master answered to tell him what it means. Yakujo Roshi says, all various things have never of themselves spoken of emptiness nor do they themselves speak of form, and they do not speak of right, wrong, perfect, or imperfect. All various things, this is our body, this is this moment, all various things have never of themselves spoken of emptiness, nor have they spoken of form. They do not speak of right, wrong, perfect, or imperfect. Nor is their mind which binds and fetter people. Hold on nor is their mind which binds and fetters people, is just because people themselves give rise to vain and arbitrary attachments that they create so many kinds of understanding, produce so many kinds of opinion, and give rise to so many various distressing loves and fears. Just understand that the many things do not originate of themselves. All of them come into existence from one, one's own mental impulse of imagination, mistakenly clinging to appearances. All of them come into existence from one's own single mental impulse of imagination, mistakenly clinging to appearances. If you know that mind and objects fundamentally never touch, he said, do not contact each other. If you know that mind and objects fundamentally do not contact each other, you will be set free on the spot. Each of the various things is in a state of quiescence right where it is. Don't make this abstract. Each of the various things is in a state of quiescence right where it is. This very place is the site of enlightenment. So today I want to make some noise about perfection versus imperfection. And start by attuning to the most unpleasant thing in your experience right now. I don't know what that is, but go ahead and I want to invite you to do that. Tune into that. And as you feel that, you may feel a quality of aversion. And see what the mind has to say about that texture. Let the mind say what it wants to say about that texture. 
and then swallow your thoughts and be curious, ask, is this flawed? Is this flawed? And if we're honest, most of the times our minds say, yes, it is. And then ask, on what basis? By what standard? With all these people in this room and with these bodies, there's got to be something you don't like. Feel into it. and ask, is this flawed? And if it's flawed, by what standard? In some sense, we might find that Zen practice is an ever more thorough boiling down a question to its essence. So if you arrive at something pretty fundamental, which is there's no basis for it being flawed, but I don't like it. I don't like it. Is even that true? What does that rest on? You don't like the flutter in your chest. You don't like the feeling in your heart. Is that really true? What is that I don't like made of? Because aversion, as we have observed in our sitting, is just habitual response. It has no ground. These might be good practices. Contemplate the texture of an aversive experience. Feel the aversion. Is this, is this flawed? How do I know? Where does that come from? The teachings say Buddha nature is perfect like vast space with nothing lacking and nothing in excess. Some critics might even be able to find a flaw with space. Not a lot going on there, <laughs> which is wrong. There's more going on there than we, we can know. Buddha nature is perfect like space. Practice something along with me. So swallow away thoughts. I'm going to give you the instruction, then we'll do it together. Swallow away thoughts. Let awareness be like a quiet sky for the sounds to happen in. Swallow away thoughts. Awareness like a quiet sky that all the sounds happen in. And let the awareness be those sounds.
perfection. I propose perfection is impossible for the habitual mind to arrive at, but it's looking for it. It's looking for it. This is what Rumi says when he says that every human being has divine longing active in them. It's impossible, however, for the habitual mind, the rational mind, to find perfection. Habitual mind's perfection is something like this. This suits my sensibilities. I really like this. But we know that there's inevitable change going to happen. We know the parts are moving, so that perfection is attended by uh, an anxiety, by grasping. That perfection is fragile. It's an emblem of the real thing. The habitual mind's perfection is so fragile a zit can shatter it. A bad mood, bad breath. It's like the Dharma of a first date. And you're like, mm, okay. Ooh, those earlobes. Oh, I wish he would stop talking. We could say habitual mind can't find perfection. We could say it continually turns away from it, continually shatters it. There's something to be said about satisfaction in practice, that practicing dharma involves not putting too much on phenomena, not expecting them to be more than they are. When we say things are as they are, that doesn't always mean that they're going to shine with divine light for you. It means that people get zits, and those you like irritate you, and the body falls apart. Things are as they are. As Hyakujo Roshi said, all the various things themselves don't speak forth perfection or imperfection. They're just being themselves. Everything is just being itself. So we put too much on phenomena. It dawned on me recently that the basic situation of conditioned life is whether you go left or you go right, you just move from one imperfect situation to another. This could be a helpful contemplation, especially for those who are younger, because the younger we are, the more we believe we believe there's this vista of time in front of us, and we're afflicted by choice, right? But our reality is, you go left, that's one configuration of samsara's problems. You go right, it's a different configuration <laughs> of samsara's problems. You swipe left. It's one configuration of samsara's problems, you swipe right. We get it, but what do we do with it? We get it, but how to make it really penetrate? 
So we put unreasonable demands on life, on people, on phenomena. And we, we do that and we also experience the consequence. But sometimes longing looks like dissatisfaction. It wears that face. You are looking for something. Your intuition is correct. And sometimes dissatisfaction blots out longing. So taken up with a this-is-all-wrong game, that we never look into that and say, well, what, what would it mean for something to be right? So there's a Zen teaching that says one of the great awarenesses of a deep human being is to know how to be satisfied. So learning to be satisfied is that dropping the irritant or getting more intimate with the irritant? Is it both? Learning to be satisfied might mean accepting that you do need to go left and not stay. That too would be learning to be satisfied. It's not about being a dead piece of wood or stone. Our practice is alive. Our practice is, is responsive. One of the deep sadnesses I find of human life is that habitual mind shrouds the wonder. And that we don't live in amazement, that we don't live in deep gratitude is caused by something. It's not the way it is. So to contemplate how the universe is perfect, is contemplating how the universe is perfect its perfection? The universe is lawful. The word dhamma means law, dharma. That the universe works in a particular way, it's not random. It's not just material bits being moved around. The universe works in a lawful way. It won't fail to hurt if we stick our hand in fire. That's perfect. And that's what the human mind does, is it's a hand that sticks itself in fire. It's perfect that it will never fail to hurt if we stick our hand in fire. It won't fail to soothe the lover who embodies love. What we do and what we be are one. It's perfect.
Appearance never fails to appear. Something always fills us, and we are always filling. If you look in this direction, something appears. If you look in that direction, something appears. There's no gap. There's no time when the universe says, nah, I'm just going to give you some empty black nothingness. You don't really deserve it. will never happen. Both a sinner and a saint walk into the forest and they can see the beauty of the trees. The fresh air is available to them. It's perfect on levels that almost can't be talked about unless you're Dogen's NG. We see what we look from. The universe is so mind-blowingly interactive. We see what we look from. Dogen Zenji. Says, water is neither strong nor weak, is neither wet nor dry, is neither moving nor still, is neither hot nor cold. It doesn't exist, it doesn't not exist. It's not diluted or awake. All beings do not see mountains and rivers in the same way. And you could plug in Porsche or Porsche or Swiss cheese. That, that, that creative way of interacting with the teachings on that level is important. He's not just talking about Chinese landscapes, of course. You know that. All beings do not see mountains and rivers in the same way. Some beings see water as a jeweled ornament, and some beings see water as wondrous blossoms. Hungry ghosts see water as raging fire, and dragons see water as a palace or a pavilion. Some beings see water as a wish-fulfilling jewel. Wish-fulfilling jewel is an image for awakened mind, our mind. Some see it as the true Dharma nature of liberation, the true human body, or as the form of body and essence of mind. Human beings only see water as water. Water is seen as dead or alive depending on the mind of the beholder. Thus, the views of all beings are not the same. Do not limit your view to that of human beings. Some people in this session have been getting a taste of, of a mountain's view, a mountain's heart. Do not limit your view to that of human beings. There are many ways to see one thing and ways to see many things seen as one. There's not just water out there. There's not just anything out there. You're never absent. I am never absent. Whatever's encountered. And Dogen says, you should pursue this beyond the limits of pursuit. Endeavors in the practice realization of the way are not limited to one or two kinds. 
that's a good one for people who think, oh, I don't do that or that. I'm just a such and such practitioner. And they might even attribute that to Dogen. He didn't say that. He said, endeavors in the practice realization of the way are not limited to shikantaza or koans. The ultimate realm has 1,000 kinds and 10,000 ways. Just to contemplate the perfection. How is it that billions of human beings, full of aggression and confusion, yes, that's us, Billions of human beings full of aggression and confusion and disagreement manage to hold culture together for even one day. Don't say it's the police. How is it that no matter what we do, space embraces it? This indestructible canvas. How is it that the moment is always fresh? Like a fountain. We can't get stuck. The moment is always fresh. You can be devastated by something and then two days, two days later be filled with joy. and vice versa. How is it that even the most jaded and desiccated person is brightened, even if it's just for a moment, by beauty? Whatever they find beautiful. But we often feel that Things are deeply imperfect. And maybe we even feel that we've been victimized by the life that we've been given. But that too is, is deep fuel. Another line of inquiry that could be useful, and you could try it along with me right now, is what's the deepest problem I have? What's the deepest problem I have? What's the actual problem? And if you arrive at, well, I can't find a high enough paying job, go deeper. What's the problem with that? Well, I live in insecurity and I work this shitty job and I can hardly feed my kids. Deeper. What's the problem with that? We're not being severe or cold to human realities. We're interested in the, the existential essence of it. What's the deepest problem? What's the actual problem that I have? What's the actual problem that anyone has?
imperfection is the matrix of compassion. In a perfect world, people aren't compassionate. That's interesting because people think in a perfect world, people will be compassionate, but actually in a perfect world, there would be no compassion. So this imperfection is is perfect, co-created over and over by minds that see mostly imperfection. We nightmare forth a harsh world. That's the Dharma understanding of culture, even of universes. That all together, and that all together is vast, we've nightmared forth exactly where we dwell. And here we're withdrawing our investment in that nightmare. It's like we're disinvesting from a shady bank. The mind that affirms imperfection blindly is a shady bank to invest in. Mind is awesome. It's terrible. Mind makes hell out of nothing. Out of absolutely nothing, mind makes hell. It's awesome. Think about as your moods have have shifted, how you've seen this place or this song or, or your life over the days. How your feelings about it have, maybe it's like a kaleidoscope. You talk about the critic a little bit. The critic, a generally disagreeable fellow, I don't know what the equivalent is for a female-bodied person, a lady, that doesn't sound right. The critic, a generally disagreeable lady, looks at us with a harsh gaze and collects snapshots of how we fall short. And so what the critic does is it puts a Polaroid in front of your face and says, remember how shitty? Remember when you were still eating and other people were done at Oriyoki? (laughs) And it spreads out its picture album of the uglinesses that makes us unworthy of companionship. And it nightmares forth a version of ourselves. Just with its blurry Polaroids. How many moments are there in a day and the disagreeable fellow plucks out his Polaroids and says, see, your practice is shitty. (laughs) You're no good just loves being a disagreeable fellow. But it's, it's funny, but it's not so funny. Because it nightmares forth a version of ourselves. And if it's outward, it nightmares forth a version of others. Genocides happen from this.
looking for perfection is not our practice. We're not looking for perfection. This perfection is not something you arrive at and go, here it is. And a personality is never a place you're going to find anything resembling perfection from the perspective of another personality. Our personalities are gardens with very strange flowers. And there's something valuable about not looking too closely, not looking with too harsh a light. It's like a flower. You might glide by shallowly and acknowledge, oh, beautiful flowers. Praise the beauty. But if you get really close, they're pretty strange, pretty hairy. Some of them are alien, scary even. Think of the movie Aliens and think of some flowers. You look real close at some flowers, they're darkly erotic. Weird insect curled up inside. Not everything needs to be looked at up close. In the Japanese temples, the Buddha is behind a screen. And once in a while, at certain ceremonies, the screen is opened. Maizumi Roshi used to talk about the hazy moon of enlightenment. Not everything needs to be look up, looked at up close. Nobody said Zen practice was to put your personality under a harsh light. Out of compassion, we do work on the ways we create harm. Out of compassion, we do try to be more flowing and less rigid. But don't confuse mindfulness for imperfection's eyes seeking to confirm its vision. Your critic can take the zafu. Don't give it to her. Imperfection's eyes seek to confirm its vision, to totalize its vision. And this is advice for myself about so-called other people as well. What's the point of a harsh light? There's an old Chan saying with profound and accessible levels that says, better to hear the name than to meet the person. Better to meet the person than hear the name. poem by Traktung Yeshe called The Unknown Bird. You could make him that unknown bird return again. This knowledge of things acquired, the divine also dwells in becoming, in because, and in why, in the poetic edda of this existence dwells within unknowing of things, unmaking of sureness. 
the joy at the end of the day. Emptiness is intimacy, not as adjective, but verb. Not intransitive, but applying always, everywhere, to everything. And that's in quotes, to everything. Unbecoming, acquiring, unmaking thingness. Returning again, the unknown bird flies from somethingness to nothingness and from nothingness to brightness. And then it alights on the shoulder of the unofficial self. He would come to live in your heart. If your life were a one-stringed instrument, if your knowing were an unmaking in the embrace of substanceless things, you could make him, that unknown bird, return again. In the Tenzo Kyokun, there is a story. I don't remember the, the practitioners involved. A teacher, the abbot of the monastery, pops into the kitchen, pops into the kitchen to check out what the Tenzo is up to. And the Tenzo is washing a bin, a basin of white rice. And the teacher says, Do you wash the chaff from the rice? or the rice from the chaff. This is about us. This is about our practice. Do you wash the chaff from the rice or the rice from the chaff? And the cook monk said, Teacher, I wash them both away at the same time. And the teacher liked that. Uh, Northern Wind by Rumi. Every second the question comes. That's so interesting. Every second the question comes, how long will you stay dregs? Each period the question comes. Each second the question comes, how long will you stay dregs? Rise. Do not keep stirring the heavy sediment. Let murkiness settle. But some torches, even when they burn with spirit, give off more smoke than light. So take heart no matter what you're encountering. Some torches, even when they burn with spirit, give off more smoke than light. No matter how hard you stare into muddy water, You will not see the moon or the sun. We do that, though. No matter how hard you stare into muddy water, you will not see the moon or the sun. A northern wind arrives that burnishes grief and opens the sky. 
somehow there's something on our side. We do this alone, but we don't. A northern wind arrives that burnishes grief and opens the sky. The soul wants to walk out in that cleansing air and not come back. The soul is a stranger trying to find a home somewhere that is not aware. Why keep grazing on why? Also something we do. Rumi's saying, why? Why keep grazing on why? Why? The soul is a stranger trying to find a home somewhere that is not aware. Why keep grazing on why? Good falcon soul, you have flown around foraging long enough. Swing back now toward the emperor's whistling. 